Welcome to the Grace Life Church podcast. My name is Parker Smith, lead pastor of Grace Life Church, located in Decatur, Alabama. Our prayer is that the sermon you're about to hear will help you grow in your understanding of God's Word, point you to the person of Jesus Christ, and encourage you to live for the glory of God. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Grace Life Church podcast. have your Bibles, I would encourage you to open with me to the book of Philippians chapter number four. And again, if you are a guest here with us, again, a word of welcome to you. My name is Parker, lead pastor here, and we are continuing to embark and are coming now to the end of the book of Philippians. And we are in the final chapter as we practice what we call here expository preaching, working our way verse by verse through books of the Bible. And now we're in chapter four, coming to the end. And Lord willing, in just a few weeks, we will conclude this great book. But if you recall, uh, earlier in the book of Philippians, I made reference on several occasions to the situation that we now meet head on here in Philippians chapter four regarding Iodia and Syntyche. Paul has been dealing with multiple themes throughout the book of Philippians, namely of joy and of unity, the marks of the gospel and the life of the local church here at Philippi. And in Pauline fashion, Paul often will circle back and hit on previous themes that he's previously addressed and make a more personal and specific application. And such is the case that Paul does here. And this is why in Philippians chapter 3, it was very difficult that I made note of to find consistent breaks in preaching of where to mark the text. And honestly, such is the case here. It would have been very easy to include Philippians 4.1 in my sermon last week at the end of chapter 3. And also it would be very easy to include verses 4 and 5 in this morning's sermon. Philippians 1 is really is a hinge verse, and I believe the Apostle Paul intends it to swing both forwards and backwards. It's a massive term that he uses there, a small word, the word therefore. And he's building an argument that we'll make more of as we move along together. But you and I both know that in life, life is full, not always of joy, but sometimes it's full of hardship. Life is not always a bed of roses. And in aspiring towards joy and towards unity in the Lord, we often encounter sin. We encounter difficulty. We encounter hardships. We encounter hardships because of a very large chapter in the Bible very early on in Genesis chapter 3, where sin is introduced and the fall of man took place and it has now wreaked havoc in our entire world, this world that we know is broken. But I don't know if you've recalled or if you've made notice of in the book of Genesis, right after the fall of man in Genesis 3, One of the most prominent themes of hardship and calamity and difficulty takes place within the family, within home, within the people that you're closest to. Consider one chapter later in Genesis chapter 4 where Cain kills his own brother Abel. Consider in Genesis 9 where Noah and his sons have difficulty when they see his father's nakedness. Consider the difficulty of Abraham and Lot in Genesis chapter 13. Consider the difficulty of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael and Isaac in Genesis 17 and 18. Consider the family difficulty of Lot and his daughters 
in Genesis 19. Consider the familial struggle of Isaac and Esau because he ate his game and Rebekah loves for Jacob in Genesis 25. Consider Jacob and Esau regarding their own birthright and the family blessing in Genesis 25 through 27. Consider the conflict with Rachel and with Leah because Rachel had no children by Jacob in Genesis 28 through 30. Consider Jacob fleeing Laban, his own father-in-law, in Genesis 31. And consider Joseph and the conflict with his own brothers from Genesis 37 to Genesis chapter 50. It's because of sin that our world is filled with hardship. It's because of sin that even familiar relationships and meaningful relationships are difficult and hardships come in life because of sin. Consider the challenges that we see in light of sin because we live in a Genesis 3 world. Further, life within the local church can also become hard. Conflict arises, sin takes place, and life together, beloved, gets messy. And throughout this letter, the Apostle Paul has been speaking to generalities and now makes specific application, now speaks to a specific issue that is going on at the local church at Philippi. And he gives us some helpful reminders in this text of how to live life in the kingdom as kingdom-minded citizens within the context of Philippians 4, with our minds that are set and focused on the Lord's coming while we live in a fallen world. And in this text, Paul makes some very personal and very specific gospel applications to the life of a Christian and to local churches. How do we live when life is hard? How do we live in the midst of difficulty around us? How do we live even when our own family gets messy? What about when our faith family and relationships within our local church get messy? What do we run? Where do we turn? Paul knows of no other place than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our sermon summary this morning could be summarized in this way, that the gospel calls us and enables us to remain devoted together even in difficulty. The gospel calls us and and enables us to remain devoted together even in difficulty. And it's with that in mind, I would invite you to stand as we read together Philippians 4, verses 1 through 3. Apostle Paul says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. This is the word of the Lord. If you believe it, would you say amen? You may be seated. I want to call your attention to just a couple of points this morning. It really follows the two verbs, the two imperatives that are given in this text. Point number one is I want you to see the importance of standing firm in the gospel. Look at verse 1. Paul says, Therefore, my brothers who I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Paul begins here with a hinge word, the word therefore. This therefore is really serving as 
the on-ramp to the final exit of this letter. Therefore, Paul says, in light of everything that he has mentioned to them to this point, in light of their partnership in the gospel, Philippians 1.5, in light of the good work that God has begun in them and will complete in them, Philippians 1.6, in light of the example of Christ and of Timothy and of Epaphroditus, of godliness and humility and of service to others, Philippians 2, in light of the coming resurrection, Philippians 3.10, in light of our citizenship that is in heaven, Philippians 3.20. In light of our coming transformation and in light of everything being subject to Christ, Philippians 3.21. Paul then says, I want you now to live in a particular way. But before he gives the command, notice that he entreats them. He entreats them with affection. He says, my brothers, that we are in essence a part of the same family, that you are my beloved. Paul uses this term twice, really in one verse. It says of whom I've loved and who is my beloved. This speaks of the deep affection that Paul has for the Philippians. He says, you are my brothers. I love you, my beloved. This is the same affection that Paul spoke of in Philippians chapter 1, that it is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart for you are partakers of me with grace. He continues in verse 8, For God is my witness how I yearn for you with the affection of Christ. This is the same love and longing that Paul is mentioning here in Philippians 4. And it indicates the deep burning affection that Paul has for them in Christ. Paul says not only that, but he says that you are my joy, my crown. Paul has written about joy throughout this letter. And Paul says, my joy is not only found in the Lord, but it's also found in you, Philippians. You are my joy. And as Paul speaks of a coming crown at the end of an athletic event in which the runners receive the crown that is due for them, a prize that is coming for their reward. Paul says, I look at this beloved Philippian church and says that you are my crown. This is my affection that I have for you. This is the charge now that I give to my beloved, my crown, my joy. And now he gives to them a command. My brothers, my love, my longing, my crown, my joy, my beloved, therefore, stand firm. Stand firm. The word is stecho. It means to stand or to hold one's ground or to remain steadfast. It was a military term that was given by commanders to the officials and the soldiers that were aligned in battle to hold their position, hold the line. Beloved, in the same way, we are engaged in a very real war for the souls of men. And we are waging war in the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of Christ. We are engaged in a spiritual battle. And so Paul says, I want you to stand firm. In Philippians 1, verse 27 and 28, Paul mentioned to them that says, whether I'm absent or I'm with you presently, I want to hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, striving together side by side for the sake of the gospel and not frightened by any of your opponents. Other opponents that Paul would mention in Philippians chapter 3 were the dogs and the evildoers who mutilate the flesh. He speaks of enemies of the cross in Philippians chapter 3 verse 18. 
And he says, you are living amongst enemies. You are engaged in a spiritual battle. Therefore, my beloved, my joy, my crown, my love, my brothers, stand firm. The same word is used to write to the church at Galatia. To stand firm, therefore, and do not submit to a yoke of slavery. It's said to the church at Corinth, to be watchful and stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. The imperative here is not only a command, but it's also given together. It's a plural command. It's given to the church that, in other words, this standing firm is not just an individual endeavor, but it is a collective endeavor. That is to say that they are to remain devoted to one another and to hold position together in the midst of the battle. That in the midst of a dark world, that they are to shine as lights, as stars in the crooked, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Paul says, I know that this is difficult. And I know that living in light of God's kingdom in a fallen and sinful world, it will get hard. It will get difficult in the midst of this battle. And so I want you to stand Firm And beloved, don't give up and don't give in. Paul wants to remind the Philippians that you're not alone. To not to turn your back on your brothers and sisters in Christ. Stand firm together. Don't allow discouragement. Don't allow defeat to get the best of you. Don't allow the enemy to tempt you to retreat. Paul says, no, hold the line. Stand firm together. One of the subtle tactics of the enemy isn't necessarily to just overpower you, but sometimes it's just to simply overwhelm you and to just make you want to quit and to give in and to give up. Christian, don't do it. Don't quit. Keep on fighting. Keep pressing on because everything is subject to Christ, Philippians 3.21. He is victorious and Paul gives an active command. That is to fight on, stand firm. Beloved, keep going and do it, Paul says, with other Christians encouraging you, lifting you up, pulling weight with you. God intends his church to be a means of refreshment to you and encouragement to you in order that you would continue standing firm. But not only that, notice that Paul gives this command. He says, stand firm together, but he also says, stand firm in the Lord. This is not a standing firm of your willpower, though is there a real active pursuit and effort that you must give. There is also a very real person in whom we are to stand firm in namely Christ. Paul means that as we stand firm, we are to do so in the power and strength that God himself gives. If we are to endure to the end, it won't be because of our effort or our power of keeping. It will only be because of the work of grace of God in our lives. And Paul says, listen, as we engage in battle You need to stand firm. You need to remain committed, but you need to anchor down somewhere. You need to do that together, but more importantly, you need to do that in the Lord. 
Your standing firm is not to be done according to your wisdom, but according to the wisdom of Christ. Your standing firm is not to be done in your own will or your own agenda, but in accordance to the will and wisdom of Christ. Your standing firm is not to be done with your way of thinking in mind, but with the mind of Christ. And it's not to be done with your kingdom and your comfort in mind, but instead we are to stand firm in the Lord. It's an active call, a daily fight, beloved. And I just want to say to those here this morning, the Christian who is tired, the Christian who is weary, don't quit. I know it's hard. I know it's difficult. I know it hasn't turned out like you thought it would. But here is what I would ask you to consider. Whose plan are you living for? Your own or his? Whose agenda are you setting? Yours or his? What is the source of your disappointment? According to this world or according to Christ? And usually, the disappointments that we face are often disappointments that we have in light of our worldly perspective rather than a heavenly one. And the other thing I would say to you this morning is don't quit because there are brothers and sisters around you and they are here to help you, to encourage you, to remind you that you're not alone, that there is help, that you're not on an island. And so let me encourage you, don't live on an island. And this is why community is so important. It's where life is shaped. It's where burdens become known. It's where needs are actually met. It's where togetherness is fostered. It's where unity is found and applied. And maybe you're doing really fine today. Maybe you're thinking, I don't need the encouragement of other Christians. Can I challenge you? to engage in community with us because one day, beloved, you're going to need the help of other Christians and you need community. And I just want to challenge you and I want to challenge us even as we press into Lord willing community groups together. This is why that is important. We need one another to challenge one another, to sharpen one another, to be invested with one another, to grow together. Would you commit to being a part of that? We need it. You need it. I need it. It's a part of our standing firm together. Point number two, helping others in the gospel. As Paul considers his beloved Philippians, his joy, his crown, he notices that his crown has a thorn in it. There's a burr in the crown. And so Paul begins to speak to a specific issue within the congregation. Of all this talk that Paul has built about unity and togetherness and joy, of doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit and living with others in mind and with Christ in mind, Paul now finally pinpoints the root of the conflict within the body. Two influential women are apparently in a heated debate with one another. I entreat, verse 2, Yodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. How many of you know that relationships are tough? They're hard. Beloved, how many of you know that relationships within the local church can also be tough? They're hard. 
Sometimes, beloved, in battle, we are hit with friendly fire. And sometimes our passions enrage and we inflict onto those who we are fighting alongside. We know several individuals within the Philippian church. We know of Lydia, who was a seller of purple, who opened up her home for the church to gather and to pray. We know of the slave girl who was miraculously converted. We know of the Philippian jailer. We know of Epaphroditus, who was a servant leader and a leader within the church and was introduced, we're about to be introduced to another member, namely Clement, in just a moment. But can you imagine that as this letter is being read to the local church at Philippi, the suspense that must have filled the room. Paul begins of speaking of humility, not looking to your own interest, but also to the interest of others, the humility in Christ's likeness, the togetherness in the gospel of striving side by side in the gospel. He mentions Timothy and the church would say, we love Timothy. He mentions Epaphroditus, our dear brother, our messenger to Paul. And then Paul speaks to an issue that no doubt would have been known within the body. And Paul mentions two more names, Yodia and Syntyche. And yet Paul's tone here is still loving and affectionate towards them. Paul isn't making an apostolic demand of these two ladies. As serious as division is, as serious as discord is, as serious as disunity is, as much as God hates discord, Proverbs 16, it's even a sin that merits church discipline if not resolved, Titus 3, and is a serious threat to the display of the glory of Christ, 1 Corinthians 1. As as bad as disunity and disharmony is, Paul is not harsh here. But he entreats both of them. And he calls them both by name, not to single them out, but because names matter. But because identity matters, it's a term of endearment. Iodia, Syntyche, agree in the Lord. Paul's urge and affectionate appeal for them is that they find agreement in the same place that we are to stand firm together, namely in the Lord, in Christ. We aren't told of the debate between these two sisters. We don't know how severe it's gotten, but we certainly know that the church is known about it. It's known within the church, and it likely has very little to do with truth or theology. It likely has everything to do with their preferences. Someone didn't get their way. Someone got their feelings hurt. And our feelings may be important, but they are not ultimate. And beloved, there will be disagreement within the local church. It is going to happen. We are humans. We are sinners. We are imperfect, and we will sin against one another, and people will sin against us. And I hate to burst your bubble, but we won't always agree with one another. In fact, did you know that across this room, many of us disagree on who we think should win the Iron Bowl this year? I won't tell you where I pull. We have differences of opinions about music style. We have difference of opinion of what type of food we like. I know it's really hard to believe this morning, but we actually disagree. Many of us maybe disagree on our political persuasion. 
We don't share a common upbringing. We don't share a common economic status with one another. My point is this, so long as that we are looking for differences, beloved, we'll find them. And there's everything under the sun that we could disagree upon. So much so that Paul says that this feud that is taking place in the body, if you are looking for it to be reconciled in the flesh, Paul said it's never going to happen. If you're looking for your ambition, for your self-conceit, for your reasoning to resolve this conflict, it'll never work. Our agreement, Paul says, our agreement is found in one place. Eodia and Syntyche agree in the Lord. The word to agree, it means to think. It means to set one's mind upon. This is why Paul said in Philippians 2 that you would have the same mind and the same love, namely that of Christ. It's why Paul challenges our thinking in Philippians chapter 3 that those who mature would think a certain way. And it's why Paul would discourage us from thinking upon earthly things. Beloved, if you are looking for unity according to the flesh, you'll never find it. The unity and togetherness in the Lord's church must be centered upon and maintained around the person of Christ, having the mind of Christ, partaking in Christ with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And Paul looks to these two ladies and he effectually says, you must be willing to look past your differences and see one another for who you are in Christ and in His gospel. You must be willing to look past your differences and see one another for who you are in Christ and in light of His gospel. To be reconciled to one another, to agree in the Lord. And beloved, we have to be willing to do in the same. To look past our differences, to look past our disagreements, to which there is no end to them. And to press on and to press past those disagreements and to find our unity in the Savior. But notice that Paul puts the onus on both Yodia and Syntyche, where we might be tempted to place blame or that, well, that's on them. I didn't do anything wrong. It's interesting that the Scripture places an emphasis both on the offended and the offender to share a responsibility in reconciliation. In Matthew chapter 5, we're told that we are to leave our gift at the altar and first go be reconciled to our brothers. To the situation in Matthew 18, that if your brother sins against you, go to him and tell him your fault. And that's what Paul encourages here. Sisters, put down your disputes and hostility and stop looking to point fingers of blame and find your agreement in Christ. Come together in Christ and recognize that we have been redeemed together and we share in common. In spite of so many differences, we share in common a glorious Savior. And then Paul looks to the church to even help these ladies continue to strive and agree in Christ together. Look at verse 3. He says, Yes, I ask you also, true companions, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. Paul now turns to others in the church to assist 
in coming together to help these true sisters. Paul appeals here to a true companion. It's a singular word in the original Greek. He says, I ask you, also singular, true companion. It appears that the Apostle Paul has someone in mind that who he is referring to. The word here for companion, suzagos, it, it means an associate. It means a comrade. It means a fellow yokeman together. It was a very similar term that Paul used of Epaphroditus in Philippians chapter 2.25. He says he is a fellow worker and a fellow soldier. And it could be that Paul is calling on Epaphroditus himself to help these women. It could be that he's calling upon the elders as a singular unit to help these women, or the deacons to help these women, Philippians 1, to come alongside them and to be peacemakers, to come alongside and to pull weight with them. And the command is given to these peacemakers to help these women. It's a word that means to seize. It means to arrest. It means to apprehend. In other words, help these women take hold of the situation that has gotten out of control. Beloved, sometimes we may need the help of mediators to help us see things clearly, to get on the same page. And that's the job of the fellowship of believers and those who are mature to help us grow together in maturity and in unity. And that's the unity of what pastors and deacons are to do. They usher in peace. That's certainly what you see, what deacons are doing in Acts chapter 6. They are putting down a disagreement within the body. But that's the true fellowship of the body, that as Christians, we ought to be champions together for reconciliation. And I say that to say this, beloved, the gospel is at stake. And here's what happens so often in churches, is that conflict arises and parties split, factions start, and so we just move on to someplace different. And there's no bearing with one another. There's no striving along with one another. There's no seeking to affirm and admonish one another in the Lord. There's no listening to one another. There's no speaking the truth in love to one another. Parties split. Parties disagree. They just leave. And beloved, the very gospel that saved us, think about it. The very gospel that saved us and has reconciled us to Christ, if that happens, that gospel is then robbed of its power to reconcile us to then live at peace and harmony with one another. To short circuit unity for just escaping robs the gospel of its power. It robs the reconciliation of the gospel. And so Paul is pointing us to, I believe, a series of remembrances in order to keep us united and to keep us forward focused in the midst of difficulty. He says, you must remember that you are striving together. You must remember that you're not alone, that you are together with one another. You must remember that the only source of your agreement can only be found in Christ. It will never be found in your preferences. You must remember the gospel that Christ has given his very life to reconcile us to himself and to one another. And Paul says, I'm not entirely sure. I'm sure Paul knows what the disagreement is over. But we may not know what the disagreement's over, but here's the reality, is that I can assure you of this, that it fails to compare 
to the union and extent that God has gone to reconcile us. And when sinners get together and they do what sinners do and they sin and they fall short and they sin against and they sin towards and it's all messy and yet they remember their Savior. They remember the gospel. They remember that they're not alone. They remember the Lord's church. They remember the Lord's people. They remember God's grace towards them. Unity becomes quite reasonable. More than reasonable, unity and peace becomes quite expected. And all of a sudden, our pride begins to shrink. All of a sudden, Christ becomes our greater focus. All of a sudden, repentance takes place. All of a sudden, forgiveness is extended. And all of a sudden, peace between two warring parties is granted. The peace of Christ and the peace of His church. And Paul looks around and he's asked, he says, I ask you, help these women understand that. Help them get that. Help them take hold of what they may have missed. He says, they've labored side by side with me together in the gospel with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. To consider that these two ladies were two ladies that once stood side by side with Paul in the gospel work. Perhaps they were there to greet he and Silas when they escaped from prison. Perhaps they were there to mend their wounds from their beating. They had labored with Paul. And Paul's desire is that he wants to see the Philippians standing firm in one spirit where these women were once a part of that unity. Now they have turned against one another. And Paul says, I want them to remember that they are past, they're past labor and together. They once were companions. They once fought alongside one another for the sake of the gospel. And now they are fighting with one another in the gospel? May it never be. The gospel is our unity. And it is our shared labor together. We are co-laborers in the gospel. And Paul says, help them be restored to that place. Help them be restored to a place of serving, striving together for the sake of the gospel, not in competition. For they are dear companions who have helped me. And not only them, Paul mentions another who is Clement. One that we don't know much about, but there is a lot that we can know about Clement, even though there is very little mentioned about him in the Scriptures. In fact, this is the only place where Clement is mentioned. It could have been that he was an elder. It could have been that he was a deacon. Perhaps he is a leader. We don't know. But what is certainly clear in the Scripture is that while Clement is lesser known, he wasn't unimportant to the Apostle Paul. He wasn't insignificant to him. He was among many fellow diligent workers at the church at Philippi, continuing to further the gospel together. And in a world where everyone wants notoriety, they want credit, they want to receive recognition, here is Clement, a humble servant of the Lord, co-laborer with the Apostle Paul, who is plowing alongside, serving alongside, and is faithful. And he is striving together, side by side, serving and helping the gospel go forward. And Paul is recognizing him and all the rest. And these two ladies, don't miss this. He says, they are true believers. Their names are in the book of life. So when Jesus says in Luke chapter 10, nevertheless, do not rejoice that the spirits are subject to you, 
but rejoice that your name is written in heaven. This is the appeal or the the hope of the psalm that we read this morning in our call to worship, that as the Lord registers the people to the city of Zion, He includes even in that city's role Gentiles and Gentile nations from Egypt to Babylon to Felicia to Tyre and to Cush, that they are all born in the city of Zion. They are city, they are citizens of God's city. Their names are written in the book of life. Daniel foresees of a rescue and a resurrection. And he says those, those were the names that shall be found in the book of life at the end of time. John's vision of Patmos and seeing the revelation of Christ in the world in the Lamb's book of life. He speaks of the Lamb's book of life of those that are vindicated at the last judgment. And Paul's anticipating that when the end comes and when this life is over and when the hardship of life is over and that with sin is eradicated and we all stand on the shores of glory, we will gather together and we will realize that we truly were all in the same boat together. We're all truly on the same team. Their names are written in heaven. Paul reminds Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 19, that the Lord knows who belong to Him. The Lord knows who are His. And we belong to Him by grace and by the electing love of God in Christ that we share a common redemption together along with our Savior. And just one more thing about Clement. His name is a Latin name. He's likely from Rome. And here Paul clues us in to a unity that spans of that of Jew and Gentile and a unity of all nations and all peoples together, namely in Christ. This is the application that Paul speaks of in Ephesians chapter 2 right after he speaks that we are, for by grace you have been saved and that through faith and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work that no one may boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared before us beforehand that we should walk in them. That grace, that gospel, that unity that Christ has given to us, he continues in Ephesians chapter 2. And he speaks of how that gospel then unifies where there was once hostility. Look at Ephesians 2 verses 11 through 16. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law and the, of the commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, therefore killing the hostility. Truly, the hostility is among the flesh, and it has been reconciled in our Redeemer, who is Christ. 
And Paul says, Philippians, I want you to look around. I want you to see that I, Paul, a Jew, and within your congregation are not just Jews, but also Gentiles. People coming from all different walks of life and don't succumb to the temptation of the Judaizers and don't be pulled back into the law and bondage of law and and, and law-keeping. Consider Clement, a brother from the province of Rome. Consider Iodia. Consider Syntyche. All of these brothers and sisters coming from all different walks of life And yet all of them were co-laborers and co-workers with me. And all of them, their names, beloved, their names are written in the book of life. They're pulling alongside us. They're with us. We are together. And church, look around. We can begin to see one another in light of all of our differences from our culture to our preferences, to our ethnicity, to our age. And if we're looking for differences, there's no end to them. But Paul says, I don't want you to lose sight of your unity together, namely who is Christ. And it's because of Christ and by virtue of being in Christ, God has brought us together with great diversity and has unified us by the blood of Christ and in the gospel of our our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And may we, as Grace Life Church, push past our differences and realize that we all wear the same uniform. We're clothed. If you have been redeemed by Christ, if you are a part of His church, if you are in Christ, we're all clothed and dressed in the same splendor of our King. We all wear the same robes of His righteousness and of His holiness. And beloved, we ought to live that way. And Paul's plea is that the church would live that way because the gospel demands us to. It enables us to consider what Christ has done. And in the same way, the book of Genesis longs to find a Redeemer and it points to Christ as the climax of the Redeemer of sin's effect on our world and in our life and in our family and in our reality. It is Christ who brings harmony and brings peace where there was once brokenness and hostility. And it is through Christ and it is in Christ that the church that the family of faith is united and is united in Him. And that is Paul's plea here, to remain devoted together in Christ, to stand in the Lord together, to help one another, agree in the Lord, and to live together in Christ. As his appeal would be to the church at Corinth, some of you say, I follow Paul and I follow Apollos. Paul's appeal Is Christ divided? And the answer to that is a resounding no. Jesus is not divided, and His church ought not to to display such a false reality. We ought to be united and as united as our Savior, and we are one in Him together. And as we come to a close this morning, how do we need to remember this gospel? How 
do we need to apply this gospel in our own personal walk with the Lord today? How do we need to apply the gospel to the Lord's church? When we might be tempted to become disgruntled or frustrated or combative or potentially divisive, to remember the togetherness of the local church. That is, that the church is to symbolize a family, namely those that belong in Christ together, that He has saved us, yes, individually, but we come together corporately and collectively that we share a common redemption. We too are family. And when it gets messy, we must remember our Redeemer who unites us and who redeems us. He unites us ethnically, He unites us socially, He unites us wholly, and He unites us unto Himself, that is, in the Lord. And it is because we are in the Lord that we are together, we are united as a faith family. And that requires our living out together by faith and obedience to the way of Christ and following His example and His humility and His love and joy together that we would bear with one another that we would love one another, that we would strive alongside one another, that we would be willing to stand and to help one another and to continue in Christ together. As you look around, I'm so thankful for the unity and the peace that is in our church here at Grace Life Church. But it ought not be taken for granted. It can easily be challenged by our flesh by our resistance and wanting to desire our own agenda. And Paul cautions us to remember and to humbly apply the gospel in the local church, to focus our attention on a coming kingdom, not our own, to focus our attention on Christ and His Word, not our own, to focus our attention not on our own selfish ambition or conceit, but to consider Christ and live according to the Word of Christ and the will of Christ and anchored in the truth of Christ that will unify His church and will unify us in Christ and striving toward that end, toward the end of truth and to the end of Christ, Paul says, I want you to be united, to agree in the Lord. That is the end of your unity and that is the keeping of your unity, namely our glorious Savior. He is our common denominator. He is Jesus Christ, and He has given His very life to reconcile us to Himself, but also to one another in one body. Amen? Let's pray together. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Grace Life Church podcast. If you would like more information or have questions about Grace Life Church, please email us at gracelifedecatur at gmail.com or find us on Facebook by searching Grace Life Church Decatur. And if you live in the Decatur area, we would love for you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. Until next time on the Grace Life Church podcast.